0: Hi, Killjoys. Rachel here with a brief message before we start the show. So the Feminist Killjoys PhD podcast has partnered with its very first sponsor. And I hope you all know that Melody and I would not participate in sponsorship if we didn't actually believe in what the sponsor was doing. So I'm very proud and excited to share that we are currently sponsored by the MA in Critical Studies program at the Pacific Northwest College of Art, because we need to interrogate, intervene and reimagine like never before. For more information or to apply, visit pnca.edu slash criticalstudies.
1: 20,000 feet
2: up, breaking all the lights on the doors, and I ain't seen no ceilings. We came in through.
1: You're listening to Feminist Killjoys, PhD, and our feminism, pop culture, and politics
0: as discussed by two professional killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we'll be talking to Dawson Barrett about high school student activism and much more. But first, Melody, where can our listeners find us on the internet? In select places, let me list
1: a few. Um, first off, you should already be listening to us on your favorite podcast application. If you have the iTunes app, you should click on it and leave us a review while you're listening to us today. On the social media tip, you can follow us on Instagram, which, by the way, we put together some Instagram stories this week, mostly Rachel, and she like did her own funding pledge drive. And y'all are amazing. More on that in a second. But Instagram is where a lot of that happened. So definitely find us on the IG. We have a Twitter account and we have a Facebook page is. So one, you can just like our Facebook page for updates about episodes, or you can join our community group, which is Feminist Killjoys Community dash WTF Power exclamation point. On the FI, we have a mixtape called the Feminist Killjoys PhD mixtape. So you can follow that every week it gets updated. If you have extra dollars and want to support us, like so many of you did last week, you can go to our website, fkjphd.com, click on the birdie to leave a one time donation or you can click on the Patreon logo and it takes you to our Patreon page where you can become a micro monthly sustainer and one dollar or more gets you into our killjoy newsletter that gets you into it you get it sent to your email box do you want to be in the? i mean if you want to be in our newsletter you can just email rachel i'm sure she'd put you in there but uh totally <laughs> at the very least totally. it gets you the newsletter sent to your email <laughs> box and then also If you do $5 or more a month, you get access to bonus content, such as our most recent bonus podcast that we did about the Oscars and Black Panther. And of course, if you want to talk to us more in-depthly, you can either email us at fkj.phd at gmail.com or call us at
0: 414-858-7818. How are you, Rachel? I am well, but I'm of course not going to answer that question until I comment on your spiel. I just want to give a second Round of thank yous to everybody who's supporting us on Patreon. It just means it means so much, and I mentioned in a story. I I think Mel, this is real time um, accountability and and possibly correction. We So we don't – it is 100% true that we do not like pay ourselves regularly with what we get on Patreon because we put so much into the cost it takes to run this thing and then we pay guests and um, et cetera. But I think we did – and I, I said that on, on Instagram. I think we did pay ourselves once like a like $100 maybe or something. Do you, do you remember? Anyway, I just want to be real transparent with people. I've only reimbursed myself for like stamps and envelopes. Right. We reimburse ourselves. Okay. Then maybe we really never have. It's, it's all be, been reimbursement. So anyway, all that is to say, it is, yeah, we do not, we, we do not make money off of this partly because with the amount that we've been making on Patreon, it really just isn't enough because what we spend is for, for stuff for the podcast. So it's a habit bump up to our goal right now which is 300 we would be able to pay ourselves for our labor and we we do put in lots and lots and lots of hours uh to to make this happen every week and so it just means so 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 much that y'all think that we deserve that so so i appreciate that and it's going to be really honestly so so helpful for us and maybe that's like too much real talk about like money specifics but i just i feel like why not be just totally transparent about that i mean it it's it's going to be super helpful, so we're we're super super grateful. Okay, so thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm well. I'm pretty well. It's been it's been a week. I lost power this week because of the storm. That was kind of it was it was just chaotic. I've been very very busy. I'm doing yoga teacher training, which meant uh, coaching it, which means I'm at the studio a lot. I was there from seven a.m. to five p.m. on Saturday. Had a nice book club on Friday night. It's been good. It's just been sort of, it's been sort of nonstop, but I am okay. How about you? I'm also okay. This past week was the week before spring
1: break. I was doing uh, my content analysis project with my students that I told you all about, and that was also chaotic, and, but also like mm-hmm. really rad, and so I have this data spreadsheet that I need to look through because I'm a nerd, and I also produced it with my students, so Spring breaks next week. I'm gonna go see my friend in Baltimore. I'm gonna go see the very wonderful Carol Stabile, feminist mentor of my life. I'm excited to see her. We might go to DC. There's nothing going on in DC during spring break. I know there is the student walkout on March 14th, but that is just like a 10-minute performative thing, and then people are going back inside. But if there is anything happening protest-wise in DC, I'm sure we will make our way down there. And yeah, I'm just excited to see my extended family, just to reiterate what you were saying. I think it's uncomfortable for us to talk about money because, well, I'm not – we're anti-capitalist people, so it's strange. But then like – yeah. I don't really get annoyed that NPR asks for money because like NPR doesn't get any corporate, well, they do get some corporate sponsors. Let's be real here. But they like <laughs> the premise of NPR and PBS from the beginning, federally subsidized and then also supported by listeners and viewers. I feel mm-hmm. good when I donate to them. I feel good when I donate to Bitch Magazine and democracy now and all those places that actually have a lot more support behind them than we do so i feel like us asking for yeah people to pay for this i don't know for this product or whatever is feels maybe yucky to us but on the flip side i would feel really good supporting feminist media and i do i do give money to both feminist media but also like local right. political news organizations Uh, specific journalists who do freelance stuff that I think like are like they have a very strong voice and they need to be paid because I know if they don't get paid doing that stuff then they're going to have to get they have to do other work that takes them away from that journalism you know right right so right exactly it's just I just wanted to yeah process that more with you and that like I it's just the our (laughs) anti-capitalism meets media production meets we have don't we don't get paid by a corporation or a university to do this work so uh,
0: we support each other right totally and i i totally agree with that i also think it's like there's a lot of gendered shit that happens when we don't feel comfortable like talking about money or asking for money and th- i'm very uh inspired by a lot of like feminist sort of entrepreneurs like very like lefty feminist entrepreneurs who are critical about capitalism who i've heard you know heard talk about the conscious shift we need to take to like say no we we put in labor we we create something that has value and we shouldn't be ashamed to ask for compensation for that for that labor so yeah real real time processing with Rachel and Melody on Feminism, economics, and this podcast. I would love you to tell us who our guest is today, since he is a friend of yours. And also, is it okay for me to say that Dawson will be one of only two cis straight mm-hmm. white men that we've mm-hmm. allowed on the show because he's that cool that we're gonna break our rule about trying primarily to not interview cis straight white yeah. men?
1: Yeah. I mean, you the way that we said it to each other behind the scenes was like Rachel's like, well, I got one white guy, so you can, you can get a white guy. That's fine. So,
2: yeah. Dawson is one of the (laughs) views
1: on a very short list of white dudes that we love. Okay. So Dawson Barrett, he right now is an assistant professor at a community college called Del Mar College, and he teaches US history. And he has written two books. So I have the first one, Teenage Rebels, Successful High School Activism from the Little Rock Nine to the Class of Tomorrow. It's an amazing graphic novel thing y'all should check out. And then in his uh, academic press with NYU Press coming out in May is a book called The Defiant, Protest Movements in Post-Liberal America. But we had him on the show to talk primarily about student activism, especially what's been going on after the Parkland shooting. So Dawson writes extensively on youth protest, punk rock, and teaching. And he's appeared in multiple academic and popular publications. And most recently, he published the article, Why the Gun Lobby is Terrified of the the youth- led hashtag never again movement. And it appeared last week on the site's Waging Nonviolence and Truth Dig. So you can use your Google skills or you can check out our social media where we have linked you to those articles. That's Dawson in a nutshell, but we're about to t- speak with him. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I am so excited you're on the show.
3: I know me too. It is it's exciting,
1: and thank you for taking the time to do this.
3: Well, as you know, uh, very busy on Sundays.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm sure Corpus Christi is also banging. So I didn't mean to pull you from the
3: the social. It was spring break. Yeah, that's true. That's true.
1: Oh, it is spring break starting on Monday at spring break. Correct. That's my spring break too. Rachel, do you get a spring well, break
0: from teaching? I do. I'm at two different colleges, so there are two different yeah. weeks. But not, neither uh, of them are this, this week, though. Yeah, sucks, but it's kind of it's kind of okay. Okay, it's fine. Yeah.
1: Okay, so Dawson, did I ever tell you or do you know that Rachel and I met in PhD school?
3: Uh, I know that because it is on your website somewhere.
1: Oh, good research. So that's how we know each other. But that's interesting because you and I also know each other through school. So that's true. I think to start off the conversation, because Rachel, did I ever tell you how I know Dawson? No, I don't know the story. It's a great, it's a great story. It, it'll, it'll be one we tell in nursing homes together. Um <laughs> But yeah, Dawson, do you want to explain like how we, how we met each other, just for Rachel and the listeners' curiosity?
3: Sure. Well, I had been living in Portland, Oregon, and going to college and playing in punk rock bands. And then I moved to Milwaukee in 2006 to go to graduate school and got involved in a variety of activism around different issues, including the war on Iraq and environmental work and anti-sweatshop work, and then eventually the 2011 Wisconsin labor crisis. And one of the groups that I worked with was the uh, campus branch of the new SDS, Students for Democratic Society. And that is where I met Mel. And we organized protests and we did banner drops. We brought in speakers uh, like Jello Biafra and Winona LaDuke. And that's really how we met. You know, I I was thinking about that because I really hadn't thought about that period in a while. And, you know, people forget, but that was just a really, really atrocious political moment you know, the backlash to anti-war activism was so severe. You know, I get uh, after one of the protests we did, I got death threats. I remember the college Republicans would post people's dorm room addresses if they were in, mentioned protesting. So, you know, it was a really toxic moment, and it took a toll on a lot of people. Um, but I was lucky to find a handful of people who were, you know, not just against the war but also doing what they could to fight it, and, and Mel was one of them.
1: Well, I was thinking about that era when Trump was elected— Because it felt very similar, and I still kind of reflect on that time as a comparative moment. It was cathartic, but also, like, we were doing important work. But, I mean, I think having a good, strong community to support each other and, like, do anti-war work, it really helped kind of get through that shitty time.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it developed uh, a lot of my lasting relationships uh, were because of that intensity, I think.
0: The The older I get, the more important I think it is to have these, like, intergenerational conversations of people who have done activist work in really horrible times, because I think when Trump got elected, a lot of people felt like nothing had ever been that bad. And if we're really sort of honest about Mm -hmm. the Bush era and also the Reagan era and the Nixon era and all, you know, all of these different periods in history. Um, I just think it's good to share those stories, not because it's happy to hear that people got death threats, but that climate, I mean, that's when I was politicized. So that's when I was doing activist work for the first time as well. And, you know, we lived through it and we survived it. So I think it's good to, to be reminded of that. But speaking of activist work, I know Dawson that that is really what where your research has has gone. Sort of expand on the premise of your research, um, maybe specifically through your your last book and your most recent book, um, and why why you decided to focus on protests and activist work.
3: Yeah, I mean broadly, I I study social movements. You know, I study how activism works and how ordinary people have changed history. Uh, and my big influences are people like Howard Zinn, who you know are not necessarily academic, so. Uh, I try to teach and I try to write in a way that's useful and accessible for people. You know, mostly I'm trying to write the books that I wish that I had found, uh, you know, in this case as either a high schooler or maybe as like a 20-year-old. So my first book, which is called Teenage Rebels, is really, it's geared toward high school students and high school teachers, Uh, and it's really just a collection of about 75 short stories about the many ways that high school students have changed U.S. history through their activism. Because... You know, there's a lot of attention, uh, you know, in the last few weeks, obviously, to high schoolers. But the reality is that teenagers have been on the front lines of every social movement in U.S. history, uh, particularly as high school students in the last hundred years. You know, they've changed dress codes. They've won Supreme Court cases. uh, They've even toppled governments. Uh, You can ask me about that if you want. It's illustrated. It's really accessible. It's readable. And it's really just to make that point that that's been normal, you know, that's We have this idea that somehow our grandparents' generation was more well-behaved or our great-grandparents. But, you know, I found high school walkouts in the 1910s and the 1920s and the 1930s. You know, there's one in the 1930s where the police are firing tear gas at high school students because they're on strike. Uh, I mean, it's a really intense history uh, and a, a really vibrant one. So that's my first book. That's called Teenage Rebels. And then my new book, which comes out in May... Is also about social movements, maybe for a slightly older audience. Uh, It's still accessible, uh, but it's doing some different stuff. It's called The Defiant. It's coming out from NYU Press. And it really is trying to tackle two two questions at once. You know, the first is that from the 1970s to the present, the wealthiest 1% of Americans have doubled their share of U.S. income to 20% and their share of American wealth to 40%. You know, this is something that a lot of people were talking about uh, sort of during Occupy Wall Street. And meanwhile, you know, since the 60s, the average American worker is making about the same uh, and maybe a little less depending on how you measure it. Uh, So the big first question is sort of how did this happen? Who made this happen? uh, Because it wasn't an accident, right? This was deliberate uh, government policy. So that's part one. And then the other side of it is how people have pushed back to this over the last 40 or so years. Uh, I think there's a myth that, you know, there hasn't been any protest since the 1960s and we should just go and talk to baby boomers about how protest works. But what I'm trying to show is that actually it's been a constant. People have done really smart things, you know, with varying degrees of success. Um, And so it's a book about, you know, government policy, but also one about protest and activism. And again, it's readable. It's supposed to be a tool. It's great for you know teaching in college classes. And so that's what I do.
1: That's rad. So does your book, I just have a follow-up question. Does your, the book that's coming out with NYU, are you going beyond high school activism?
3: Yeah. In fact, I mean, it sort of mentions a little bit of high school activism, but really picking semi-random movements kind of from various eras to like, you know, one is really heavy on the movement against the Iraq war. So it's, you know, talking about lots of different groups, Uh, the environmental movement of the 1980s, anti-globalization stuff and anti-sweatshop work uh, in the 90s. It's not specific to high school activism. It's more sort of a broader scale how social movements work and how people get involved and how they try to pressure and kind of stop things from happening.
1: I'm very excited for your book. That's really rad that you both got to publish with a punk rock DIY publisher at first, and then you got an academic press as well. So that's awesome. The reason why I wanted you to be on the show and I'm so glad that you said yes to doing it fairly quickly was because I've been thinking about you a lot since the Parkland shooting and the high school activism that has been coming out of that tragedy and a lot of my students have been really fascinated with it as well and they've been following the action on social media. I would just love to know what your thoughts are, given your research background on what these kids are doing.
3: Well, you know, it's been on my mind, uh, kind of like everybody else that I know, I guess, you know, for from a sort of a social movement perspective, and a historian's perspective, you know, to give a little bit of background, you know, this didn't come out of nowhere, you know, for one thing, there have been groups who've been working on this uh, and they should be recognized, you know, groups like Every Town for Gun Safety and Moms Demand Action. And I think really clearly, you know, these students are benefiting from, you know, an activist culture that's been sort of hard earned, especially in the last few years, uh, whether we're talking about movement for black lives or Standing Rock or Me Too or all the way back to Occupy Wall Street or, uh, you know, the, the DACA immigrant rights movement. You know, I, I think that that background is really helpful um, but, you know, absolutely, in terms of, you know, the gun debate, there's there's a, a totally new momentum right now, uh, and there have already been dozens and dozens of high school and junior high walkouts, and there are going to be uh, just a ton more in the next few weeks. Uh, so, so you know, on a personal level, of course, I'm, I'm horrified by these shootings. You know, the Columbine shootings were my junior year of high school, and that, uh, that anniversary is coming up in April. That'll be 19 years ago. Uh, and so, as now an adult, you know, I'm just... Just absolutely ashamed, you know, adults should be ashamed of ourselves for failing young people. Uh, but I'm also inspired, you know, I'm, I'm also you know, watching Emma Gonzalez's we, we call BS speech and watching these students put, you know, make Marco Rubio and the NRA really uncomfortable uh, and then all these walkouts everywhere. You know, on a a personal level, you know, I'm I'm trying to think about, you know, what I can do and what my role is in this, try to sort of amplify, because I think there's a tendency for older people to see young people doing things and uh, try to tell them what to do. And I think that's a a really unhelpful approach. Uh, And, you know, I, I teach at a community college and we have a huge dual enrollment program. So for the last five years, I've been teaching lots of college classes to high school students. So, you know, this is really close to me personally, and I'm trying to think about how I can get in the game and be an ally because, you know, the young people are doing their part and they're going to continue to do it even if, you know, administrators threaten to suspend them or they get death threats. You know, the Stoneman Douglas students have been getting death threats. And so I I think a bigger question is, you know, what are adults going to do? How are adults going to use, you know, their money and their votes and their clout to put pressure on the people who need to be pressured? In this case, you know, corporations and wealthy donors and politicians you know, because high school students really are not equipped to confront them. So I think really adults need to be having our own walkouts um, as allies in some sense. You know, I, I, another thing I've been thinking about, you know, when we talk about protests, you know, I, I write about protest all the time. And sometimes I'm writing about failed protests and it doesn't work. And people say, well, what's the point if it doesn't work? Well, one thing is that it changes the people who do it. And so, you know, when you think about the United States on a large scale, by this summer, basically every high school student in this country is going to have at least contemplated whether or not they should break the rules and walk out of class and protest. You know, that can be life changing. <laughs> that is something that we should really, really be talking more about. You know, I don't know where this is going, but I, I do want to start talking to people that I know, not telling what the high school students, what they need to do, but, you know, what are we going to do?
1: I work at a community college as well, and Rachel works at various different colleges. What do you th- think we should do? Because I don't—actually, I would also be curious to know if faculty at your school has been talking about this. I've been trying to get, like, a brown bag circle <laughs> to, like, talk, but we haven't had any conversations together as faculty. But what are some of your ideas?
3: Well, I mean, I, you know, I think that's exactly what needs to be happening. I mean, I, you know, to be clear, you know, I really love that you do your podcast and that, you know, it's it's within— Uh, you know, the wheelhouse of your education and your background and your skill set. You know, I'm not trying to go outside of that, you know, but absolutely organizing faculty and talking about these things and trying, you know, when we can to provide cover for students who are doing things, you know. Also, you know, I don't know if you've seen any of this on social media, but there are really, really vicious attacks toward these Florida high school students and toward all high school students who are walking out. And, you know, one of our roles as Adults, you know, not even as academics, but just as adults is to step in and, you know, provide some defense and say, actually, you know, and in my case, I say, well, actually, they're not naive. There's a long history of them being you know, way ahead of the curve and especially on social justice issues. Uh, and you know and being a part of that conversation but yeah ultimately it does have to be action I, I don't have the the answers for that
1: i really like that action item though about us getting more involved on social media because that's something that i definitely have not done yet but i see it happening and i feel like in some ways i'm like oh well they're generation z they've dealt with this before i should be stepping up as an adult and as a longtime activist thank you for bringing that up i think that's a good action item that a lot of our listeners
0: will definitely contemplate i really i also really like the point about that protests are never sort of useless or futile if they don't accomplish the the sort of set goals um because of the way that they impact and and politicize and change the people who are who are organizing and i think that's a particularly relevant for something like a gun debate which i think is a lot more complicated than po- the level of policy which i'm sure uh, as a social movement scholar, you discuss, you know, sort of it's social change is much broader than than laws. And certainly in in the u s, which is just so inundated with with guns, you know, i I personally don't know that a like a law change is going to create the change that we need. but but the fact that these young people are are learning how to organize and speak truth to power, I think is a really, really good point. We were also thinking that we wanted your perspective on how, you've noticed protest movements shifting under different presidencies it seems like you've been doing this work you're a historian too so you've been doing it further but for you know prior to you're thinking about things before george bush but it sounds like you are starting to get active during that era as an anti-capitalist i feel like these protest movements are going to be um you know far left social movements are going to be stifled by all presidents in in the US whether they're democrat or republican but we've definitely seen unique and distinct forms of repression often under uh Republican presidents. But just curious on your thoughts on that and maybe even speaking up through like the J twenty protests that just happened and how that was a unique moment as well.
3: Yeah, well <laughs> so your question is basically what my new book is. It's basically like, you know, what did protest look like under, you know, in the Reagan era and the Bush era and the Clinton era and and on and on and on. From sort of a combination of that you know, assessment and my own personal experiences, it does have a very different feel. It may not have a very different substance, but you know, like just starting with George W. Bush, you know, with Bush, the big issue was the war. You know, he was terrible on the environment, mm-hmm. he was terrible on women's rights, he was terrible on everything, uh, but the war was the big, urgent issue. And so, in, in some ways, it was uh, like a major kind of one-issue moment and, and as we were talking about, you know, it was incredibly hostile, and, and not just to, you know, and people saying horrible things, but the, you know, sur- the sur- rise of the surveillance state and mass arrests and you know, widespread repression, not just from the administration, but also from you know, Fox News and and Bush backers in general. You know, anyone who was active in that moment and was paying attention, you know, Obama being elected was this enormous relief. You know. <laughs> this, this blissful feeling compared to, you know, Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld, you know, on a personal level. And you know, he says nice things about the labor movement and civil rights. You know he mentioned Stonewall in, in his speeches. Mm-hmm. And he's publicly compassionate when horrible things happen. You know, the murder of Trayvon Martin, he says nice things, the slut shaming of uh, Sandra Fluke, he says nice things. And so, you know, th- there are certainly... You know, people have talked about how movements kind of take their foot off the gas because of that. I don't think that that's accurate. I think under Obama, there were lots and lots of protest movement pushes. The environmental movement was all over fracking and pipelines, You know, marriage equality, immigrant rights, Occupy Wall Street, the movement for black lives, Standing Rock, you know, on and on and on. And and, and absolutely right. The Obama administration, I would not say was friendly to these movements in any way, but. You know, Obama proved to be pressurable, at least a little bit mm-hmm, in a mm-hmm. way that Republicans just are not. And and I think it's worth, you know, noting that actually, under pressure from protesters, Obama, you know, he ordered the investigation of the police forces of Ferguson and Chicago. He suspended the Keystone and Dakota access pipelines. He ultimately supported marriage equality. You know, he required health insurance companies to treat women like they exist. You know, I, I would say that there were lots and lots of movements and some minor successes. And you know, in many ways, it was less hostile, at least coming from the president. Uh, but then, you know, the Tea Party folks, especially state governors like Scott Walker, uh, were kind of this other thing, you know. And now we have Trump, who is hostile to everyone, you know, even his best friends. He's one of the most toxic public figures in in recent memory, you know. I mean, even politics aside, he's just a disgusting person. And so it's been all hands on deck for every protest movement. You know, everyone and every issue is under attack, and. It, I would say it's a state of terror, whether we realize it yet or not. You know, we've got neo-Nazis and refugee bans, and uh, he's ramped up military bombings all over the world, and, and on and on and on, right? I mean, we can, we can come up with a long list. Uh, and the upside, if, you know, if there is one, I don't really know if there is, but, you know, everybody is kind of in the game now. So, you know, we've got nothing to lose, so maybe we will get on the same page. You know, I'm not, I'm not the first person to suggest this, but, you know, what if we start thinking bigger, even on... On what's going on uh, with high school students, you know, bigger than the NRA, and instead think also about ALEC, you know, who also lets gun companies write gun mm-hmm. laws, you know, and then if it's ALEC, well, then now we can talk about for-profit prisons writing prison laws, and for-profit education companies writing education policy, and corporations limiting voter registration. What if we see our team as, you know, bigger than single issues? I joke, and I don't actually think this in any serious way, but if you're going to design someone to unite all these different movements, you know, Trump is brilliant at it, you know, I mean, he, mm-hmm. he's attacked. You know, I have a, a list at the end of my book. It's like my epilogue. And it's this list of people he said horrible things about. <laughs> it's like you know, 40 groups. So, you know, we should be at least natural allies against, you know, a common opponent anyway.
0: So shifting uh, back to your focus on student activism, uh, I know that that isn't the focus of the most recent book, but we are just wondering, since you're a parent, Has that shifted your perspective on any of this, whether it's sort of thinking about young people or just the state of the world more generally?
3: Well, you know, uh, I guess the the easy word is that it's overwhelming. I mean, mean, to be honest, you know, I'm a teacher. So even, you know, before being a parent, you know, I'm on the side of young people. You know, I am trying to help with the fight for the future. Um, You know, those are my politics anyway. But, you know, definitely having a child leaves me a lot less room for what I would trend toward personally, you know, uh, pessimism and cynicism and woe is me and selfishness. Uh, You know, I mean, I have have skin in the game. So, you know, I don't get to be selfish with my time or with, you know, how I think about the future. And, And I wasn't necessarily someone who thought that, you know, I would have children. So parenting has been Uh, a surprise in many ways, uh, you know, surprising how rewarding it is and surprising how hard it is, you know, so it's all these different pushes and pulls. You know, in one sense, it takes me out of the activism game because, you know, my partner and I now have this other responsibility. And, you know, and I don't want to, you know, normalize uh, my parenting experience. But, you know, for me personally, this has added an additional level uh, to my relationship with my partner, who is also an overworked scholar and activist. You know, in my adult life, I've tried roughly to, you know, to apply anarchist and feminist principles to my teaching and to my activism and to my personal relationships. And now I have this, this extra challenge to applying those, Mm -hmm. those ideas to my interactions with uh, this child and to my partner and, you know, both at the same time. Uh, And, and under the conditions of extreme stress, extreme exhaustion, uh, extreme urgency. I mean, there's basically not a night when One, two, or all three of us are, you know, (laughs) borderline monsters from stress and exhaustion. So, you know, but it's also wonderful. Uh, It certainly does impact how I see the future and, you know, my responsibility for the future world. But then also at the same time, I'm just (laughs) crushed (laughs) uh, at all times. That's parenting.
1: (laughs) I feel like there's an added emotional layer to all this work, too, once you have people in your life that you deeply care about. But I feel like all of us as teachers, it's a similar feeling, right? You know, that like, when we think about the activism, why the activism is happening right now about violence in schools. That's something that as Dawson mentioned, like directly relates to us every single day. And uh, I didn't mention this earlier, Dawson, but I in my community college, we also have that dual enrollment thing. And we call it Post-secondary option education, uh, and it rolls so off the tongue. it do- it doesn't it. <laughs> <laughs> so I work with a lot of high school students as well. It's just it adds em- emotion to teaching that I wasn't expecting to have, but. Like having a child is rewarding. And also, I I feel like not to get off on a separate subject, but it it becomes very gendered as well that like students look to the people that are seen as women as like the caretakers. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there's obviously stuff going on there as well. But yeah, I second definitely the emotional and what you were saying about not being as cynical. I try to also stay a little bit more hopeful because sometimes students look to me for that hope. And so I just quote Mr. Rogers, where he says that you always have <laughs> to look for the helpers.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: All I say is openly support student activism in the class. And I I tell them that point blank. And we, talk, we talked about the walkout, but the walkout is during our spring break as well. And so it was this... Students were interested in it but there was no space for us to do the walkout and so we're going to we're going to talk about March 24th instead which is on the weekend. But I guess actually could I just I just want to ask you another question specifically about student activism and because mm-hmm. this is something that I struggle with and I'm curious how you deal with it especially since we're both at a community college along the lines of me saying, you know, I support students who speak up and I I really do believe that, like that people who speak up against those in power, like I really support. And I say that, but then the forms of activism that have come up in the last couple of years, Black Lives Matter, Never Again, those are all <laughs> movements that I agree with. And so I wonder how you talk to your students or how you think about this is that is all student uprisings something to be hopeful about, to write about, to think about, Or are you still super punk rock and are no, only the like super leftist movements are ones that I'm, I'm interested in interrogating.
3: I guess I I would approach that from, you know, a few different directions. You know, I mean, one, you know, as a teacher, I, one of my jobs, you know, to me is to empower students. And of course, you know, they can be empowered to do horrible things or to say things that I really don't agree with. Uh, So, you know, but that, that isn't my call. You know, in the introduction to Teenage Rebels, I talk about how I'm not trying to say that young people are always right. You know, there are lots of high school protests against desegregation. Most teenage rebellion is, you know, self-destructive or bullying. Um, You know, I don't consider that worth writing a book about in this in this context. You know, because that's the bummer, right? Is it basically if a student is, you know, standing up for something that I don't agree with, then they're probably going to be bigoted or violent. This hasn't happened to me, but, you know, there there have been a few high school protests in the last few years in defense of the Confederate flag. That's a bummer. You know, those students are wrong. Maybe it's a good thing that they're, you know, testing the rules. And, you know, and I actually think that it it can be a good thing to be wrong. I mean, I've done things in my life that I cringe every time I think about it, and I'm better for those things. I won't repeat those mistakes. So, you know, in in an ideal world, maybe someone, someone who defended the Confederate flag a few years ago at 15, you know, will have different experiences that will make them, you know, become an anti-racist activist as a result. Um, And and I can talk on a personal level, you take away the sort of visceral kind of knee-jerk response. I had a student who was a really, really good student, uh, very conservative, and we butt heads all the time, but he loved my class, you know, and his dream is basically to become an engineer and extract fossil fuels from the ground. Uh, And he was really excited he got into a program for it. Uh, And he worked really hard for that. And so I was really happy for him and, you know, congratulated him. You know, but that doesn't make me any more supportive of that industry, which I think, you know, kills people on a really large scale and is dooming the planet. But I also don't think I've given any students the impression that they're not going to, that I'm not going to challenge them if I disagree with them. I I support them challenging me, but he won't be surprised if he sees me outside picketing, you know, Exxon or whatever. (laughs) I, I guess I feel like I can still... I can still support it, you know, but also oppose it at the same time, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, definitely. Rachel, did you have any thoughts on my question? I think it's a really hard question. And I think, you know, there's like most things, there's not like a black and white answer. And I think there's a difference between being happy for a student who gets a job as an engineer for a cause you don't agree with that you'll still continue to protest than to feel happy you empowered a student to like attend a KKK rally, like, you know, there's like, which I didn't hear you say, I'm just, I'm right. just saying that I, that, it, that it feels really complicated. And, you know, I definitely, the, the school that I've taught the longest at, you know, sort of leans conservative and in, in comm studies, we often get like a lot of like marketing majors who are sort of wanting to do the things that I'm teaching them is like really fucking horrible. When we talk about like advertising and all these things, I'm able to find middle ground there, but I mean, Mel do you think you're ultimately getting at sort of free speech versus hate speech like is is all is all kinds of protests good? I mean is that sort of your ultimate question or are you are you really more interested in like interpersonally with particular students?
1: No, I'm not interested in it interpersonally. It's more about I think it is awesome when students get the courage and the bravery to speak up to those people in power. But what happens when the thing that they're speaking up against is not in line with my values, beliefs, or politics. How do you kind of sort that out? And I guess that ends up being interpersonal. I was curious what Dawson had to say as like an object of study, as an analogy, like with my work, it's like, I don't like it when people oppose bike stuff because I think bicycling is really important but if they're going to oppose it because it's a tool for gentrification or racism then I'm going to take the time to unpack it but all if they're going to complain about it because they like lose their parking spot and they you know they can't get right into their stupid coffee shop like I don't really care about that kind of teasing out what aspects of activism we stand behind it was just more of like a thought question you're
2: wrong about virtues of christianity and you're wrong. If you agree with Sean Hannity, if you think that pride is about nationality, you're wrong.
1: Dawson, how do students topple a government? <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, well, I tell you, part of the answer is how, how students always win is to you know recruit adult allies. Right, I mean, part mm. part of why I, I wrote the book Teenage Rebels is, to, and and I when, and I got to go talk to young people about it, and I got to just ask them as an audience. I say, okay, who makes all the rules that you have to follow? Mm-hmm. And they can easily list them. Okay, my parents, my teachers, my principals, the school board, the mayor, the governor, the president. Right, it just keeps going and going and going, and they don't get a vote. And I don't even mean just like a ballot box vote; like they get no say except through protest. So. On kind of any given issue, they are up against everyone at once. And so the way they win is how everyone else wins, is you isolate your opponents and you draw allies. And so there are a few examples of of young people toppling governments. The the two that I like the most, one of them is in uh, 1936 in Alameda, California, the mayor fired the superintendent of schools and the students, high school students went out on strike. Uh, But the mayor... Had pissed off all kinds of people in the city. So these students found his opponents uh, and kind of built an alliance. And so, you know, they launched recall petitions against the, the city council. A hotel hosted a fundraising dance for them so they could buy strike supplies, you know, and, and parents, you know, supported the strike and they got good press. Because, you know, the newspaper was already against the mayor and they won. The mayor backed off and he rehired the superintendent. And then like the whole city council went down in flames and a huge, huge scandal in the next year or so. Like that's a a major, major shift in uh, what you think high school students are capable of. That mayor had also threatened martial law, which is wild. But then uh, another example that I really like is in 1950. And I like it because it's the 1950s when everyone thinks like it's like leave it to be of our world. In 1950, 30,000 high school students in New York City went on strike for a week and they stormed City Hall and the mayor was so scared that he ordered 100 police officers, 25 police officers on horseback and FBI agents to defend City Hall, wow. and it became national news. Like the literally front top story in the newspapers was FBI joins cops against striking students, and they were so so scared. And to be fair to the mayor, the students actually were turning over cars and things like that. Uh, you know, it's thirty thousand kids, but their their demand was raises for their teachers. Oh, I know it's hard. It's amazing. Ugh. And guess what? They won. They got them. I love that. It's great. You know, when you hear like, "Oh, these oh, there's a stupid, stupid op-ed this week." I, I don't know what it was in, maybe USA Today or something. The AEI, so you know, was, you know, some corporate shell talking about how, like, uh, you know, if you're a logical person, you know that high school students are less wise than adults always. Mm. So don't listen to these kids. Uh, and you know. Obviously, that's what someone's going to say if they're you know in the pocket of the gun industry. Uh, but you know, by telling these stories, what I'm trying to say is actually it turns out that you know high school students have a long track record of not just protest but also winning and kind of overwhelming adults who, uh, you know, and even this you know this time you know there's a I don't know superintendent or somebody in Texas who said oh, well, you know, any student who goes, uh, who protests is going to get suspended for three days. And I don't care if I get notes from parents, it won't change anything. Uh, And then, you know, within a day, they like, you know, erased that post and (laughs) like, haven't said anything since. So, (laughs) And again, that's, you know, oh, he decided not just to pick on the kids, but to take on the parents too. You know, So it's it's all about, it's all about, you know, bigger alliances, you know, and and that I would kind of go back to our earlier question of, you know, empowering the wrong people. Look, I think that the overwhelming majority of the world agrees with me on most things, you know, maybe not on the specifics, but on sort of a basic level, you know, we are the 99%, right, something Mm -hmm. along those lines. Mm -hmm. So the likelihood that I would inspire, I mean, first of all, if I inspired someone to go do like a Klan rally, (laughs) they would have already had to sit through a semester of me just, just (laughs) blasting white supremacy in US history. So at least they would go with like, a fully formed understanding of that history, which is, I mean, basically that just doesn't happen. Right. We already know these are yeah. ignorant people, yeah. not just stupid people.
0: I love that story about the teacher raises. I think that's a great note to end on and an inspiring one. Unless Last Melody, you have anything else?
1: Dawson, you're very inspiring and um, I'm excited for your book and we'll definitely link to your article. He has an article out on the internet Dawson, tell me what it's called.
3: Why the Gun Lobby is Terrified of the Youth-Led Never Again Movement.
0: Boom. Awesome.
1: So cool. his thoughts are also summarized there. Do you feel like sharing what you're reading, watching, and listening to? Okay, okay do give me a minute. Do, yeah. do, do, do.
2: <laughs> when you imprison people, turn in tricks. And you're wrong about trickle-down economics. If you think that punk rock doesn't mix with politics, you're wrong. You're wrong for hating queers and eating steers if you kill for the thrill of the hunt. You're wrong about wearing fur and not hating at culture. Cause she's a cunted cunt. Or you're wrong if you celebrate Columbus Day. And you're wrong if you think there'll be a judgment day. If you're a charter member of the NRA.
1: You're wrong. The itsy bitsy spider went up the water spout. Out came the sun and dried up all the rain. And the itsy bitsy spider went up the spout again. Also that's, that's, that's my friend Liam's favorite song right now, so
3: Yeah, I'm getting I'm I'm getting better at singing the same songs over oh and over
0: again. <laughs>
1: Let me see here. Where's my notes? I'm reading. I just read this amazing article in the December issue of Bust. I'm a little behind. There was this amazing article about Bolivian women who are wrestlers. And it is fantastic. And I will put it out on the social media. I'm watching my students broadcasting pieces in my media writing class. We just decided to like experiment with broadcast journalism and they put together all these amazing stories about school stuff. And so it was just really fun watching them do it. And they're amazing. And then I'm listening to this local artist. His name is Taylor Donsky. He was in my brother's band and he just put out a very like indie rock falsetto voice album which with strings so it's just right up my alley. It's very calming with chimes. That's that's my deal. Only one Great. white dude in there. Okay, yes, go on. Uh <laughs> Rachel,
0: what are you um, reading, watching and listening to? I'm reading so I was I was looking at like going back to some affect theory stuff when I was writing the tarot reflection for our newsletter Melody. So I was rereading Sarah Ahmed's The Promise of Happiness and for the first time reading Anset Setkovic, I think I pronounced that correctly, her book Depression, which I actually had never read. And I read the intro and was really interested in it. And I'm actually having some conversations with folks on our Facebook group uh, because I don't I'm not totally sure how I feel about it. But, you know, I love theory and about especially about emotions. So that's what I was reading uh, this last week, watching. I just today, my partner and I are trying to see movies more specifically because I'm trying to find ways to do things that can make my mom's life just a little happier. So we're like seeing the same movie in our respective cities, like the same day and trying to do the same time so that we can like like we're seeing a movie together so we can talk about it after so we were trying to coordinate that this weekend and the only movie that seemed like it was going to work for all of us was this movie thoroughbreds that just came out that's like this indie film about it's it's kind of being touted as like a a contemporary heathers which i love the movie heathers but i was underwhelmed with it it was it was no heathers but that's what i watched today and listening to the wild tarot podcast wild soul tarot podcast was really good this week that's mine awesome?
3: Well, uh, I've been reading a book called Against the Deportation Terror that is by Rachel Ida Buff, who's a oh. professor at UW-Milwaukee. Whoop, whoop. Uh, and it is awesome. And it is uh, basically about activists who've tried to uh, prevent deportations uh, over the last century uh, in the United States. Um, it's a really rich history. It's a really relevant history. Uh, And then she actually came and spoke at my school a couple weeks ago. We had all kinds of local uh, immigrant rights activists there and lots of students there. And it was a really great uh, conversation. People, uh, you know, talked about uh, whether even, you know, whether they were undocumented or friends that they had. Uh, People uh, really, really bonded over that. So that's really great. That book is called Against the Deportation Terror. And then, you know, I go through these spells where I don't get to see any movies, but we went and saw Black Panther, which I thought was really good. Uh, And then I watched the documentary Dolores, about Dolores Huerta, uh, which uh, I also saw because we screened at my school. Uh, And then I was a part of a panel where I got to talk about uh, the current uh, sort of struggles of uh, farm workers in our country, uh, specifically the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, who have a campaign against Wendy's, including a fast that uh, just started today. So that's worth checking out. Uh, And then... Listening, I kind of go in waves. Uh, I'm always listening to Propagandi, and I sometimes get to listen to The Dig, which is, uh, you know, a podcast that has people I like on it. And now I have to catch up on all of your podcasts as well. Um, So that's my, that's what I've been doing.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for the work that you do.
1: Same. I just really miss you, Dawson. I wish we were in the same city so we could fight together. (sighs) Yeah but it's okay we're fighting on
3: the same team
1: we we are
3: just long distance (laughs) different fronts yeah
1: that that was very great so we'll i'll like cut (laughs) this out this will this will like fade into a propaganda song or something Um, (laughs) awesome excellent
2: virus and erase the memory of machines that maintain this capitalist dynasty and yes i recognize the irony the system I oppose affords me the luxury of fighting the hand that feeds that's exactly why privileged fucks like me should feel obliged
0: to chicken and and yeah to everyone everything they need. hello rachel was Hello, that- melody we are back we don't and you knew it, it cuz you already heard it cuz you were part of it cuz I was part of it we're there is no magic of editing here friends this is I actually listened to the interview. Anyway, we don't have much to say because we finished up our WLs with Dawson, so I'm just gonna say WTF.